As I mentioned in the first service, we we always know we're in for a great morning of worship at the gospel choir, especially if Wyeth breaks out his purple shirt. It's great, um, great to have uh, the gospel choir with us today. Wyeth, thank you for your leadership with them. Uh, I want to start by asking you a question. How is your mental diet? Your mind is one of the most remarkable things that God created. It is faster, more powerful, more dynamic than any computer that we have been able to create. The question I have is, are you caring for it? When the biblical writers talk about our mind, which occasionally they refer to, uh, somewhat confusingly, as our heart, because, uh, not because they can't, know, they don't know the difference between the, our brain and our head and our a pump in our chest, but because heart uh, is used to refer to the essence of who we are, the epicenter, the, the nexus of our thoughts and our will and our feelings, that sort of grand central. Uh, so sometimes they will refer to our mind as our heart. When they refer to our mind or our heart, it is frequently to say, be certain you are guarding it. You are protecting it. And so um, I ask the question, are you guarding your heart? Are you protecting your mind? How is your mental diet? Last week in uh, the first of this two-part message on thinking, which uh, uh, I defined as the you know, weighing and analyzing and sort of critically assessing the thoughts and ideas and books and shows that are around us. It's the thinking is the, the dialogue we have in our mind. It is the conversation that we have with ourself. Uh, in the first message on thinking, I made three points. Number one, uh, we are expected to think. It is assumed, indeed it is commanded, we are invited to think God's thoughts after him. It's just expected. He gave us a mind, we're supposed to use it. Secondly, um, our thoughts matter. They matter to God. Everything about you matters to God. But because he loves us and because he wants the best for us, he's not simply concerned with what we say and do. He's also concerned with what we think. Because, point number three, our thoughts matter to us. They shape us. They form us. They, they direct our future path. You are who you are. You are where you are today because of the things you were thinking about previously. The conversations you were in, the books you read, the Bible studies you were in, the TV shows you watched, the conversations you had with yourself, right? All of those things have, have conspired to form your soul and to direct you down the path that you have gone down. We are who we are because of the way we think and the things we choose to think about, it is uh, almost as simple as saying, garbage in, garbage out. 
It's, it's perhaps not quite that simple, and it's certainly not that easy, because we are broken, we are sinful, we're, we're curved inward, bent, uh, depraved, whatever term you want to use. Because we're broken, our mind often goes in all the wrong directions. It's not easy for us to, to hold every thought captive to Christ, as Paul instructs us to do. But to the extent that we do that, we win. Because we are what we think about. Our thoughts shape us. I now want to just continue to think about thinking by making uh, some additional observations. So this will be number four. Number one is we're expected to think. Number two, our thoughts matter to God. Number three, our thoughts matter to us. Point number four. It is ever more critical that we think today because we are living in a culture in decline. Now, by culture, um, I'm referring to our collective norms, our societal values, our traditions, our, our, our values. And when I say that our culture is in decline, I mean the current um, is heading downstream when we want to go upstream, and the current is uh, picking up speed. So we can't just casually float along. Now, please hear me, because when uh, people talk about culture, especially when Christians talk about culture, they go in a couple directions that I do not want to go. For starters, there's a lot of culture war banter that goes on, and I'm not comfortable with much of it because I think it suggests that the past was better than it was. It tends to demonize the very people we're supposed to love and serve. It fuels a lot of fear. It generally leads to Christians retreating from the public square as opposed to moving into it. Additionally, I don't, uh, I don't understand, and I think the, the idea, when people talk about culture, the, the idea that what is Christian is is necessarily good and what is non-Christian is not as good. I just I don't think that we can go there. This sacred-secular divide that many people embrace, I don't think it works. For starters, some of what is billed Christian, some of what is sold or marketed as Christian, whether it's art or music or movies or whatever, is not good. It's, it's remarkably second class. Some of it is great. It's wonderful and glorious. But just because somebody says it's a Christian or just because a Christian has done it doesn't mean that it's good. And additionally, and more significantly, this is not, this sacred secular division is not one that Paul is endorsing. Quite the opposite. The list that we get in Philippians 4, verse 8, when he says that we're to think about things that are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy, this is very specifically not a Christian list. Some of the terms that are in this list don't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. They're not Christian terms. right? Paul is looking to the Greek culture at this moment, and, and he is... He is saying, there, is, there are things out there in that culture that are good, that are noble, that are right, that are beautiful, that are wonderful. So this list is, is not only not saying we're supposed to think about just church-related things. 
It's saying that there are good things in the broader culture. Now, please understand, I'm not suggesting that we can be saved by good culture. That we can become good people through good philosophy or good music or good art. No, that's, that, that, that's not the way it happens. I mean, it's worth pointing out that the Greeks were celebrated for having the highest culture, right? The, the greatest philosophy and the great art and great architecture. And it was a Greek, it was a guy in Macedonia that appears to Paul in a, in a dream saying, please come and bring the gospel to us. Paul was trying to take the gospel to Asia on the second missionary trip. And, and the Holy Spirit is preventing that. And a man from Macedonia appears to Paul in a dream, begging them to bring the gospel. Because we're not, we're not saved, we're not reconciled to God, we're not made right as people simply through good culture. So I'm not saying that. But I am saying that good culture can be found in a variety of different places, even as I argue the culture we're in today is declining. We cannot just passively keep drinking the cultural Kool-Aid and think that we're going to be okay. A handful of ways to make this point. I, I would note that one of the things that's true about today in the West is that is relativism is basically carried the day. Relativism is the idea that there are no absolutes. That there's, there's your truth and my truth and, and everybody's truth, but there's no truth truth. There's no absolutes. Uh, as uh, it is the first thing, by the way, that Paul has on his list, right? We're to think about things that are true. And our culture increasingly says, because it wants to be open and loving and tolerant and accepting of everything, everything is true. Which means, of course, that nothing is true. It's one recent uh, graduate at a commencement address at Harvard University said to the faculty, you have taught us to believe that we're free to believe Whatever we want to believe, as long as we don't believe that it's true. We live in a culture of relativism. Truth has gone away. Secondly, our culture is increasingly crass and and vulgar. It It is making private things public. In particular, sex. And this is a this is a classic. Uh, trait of a culture in decline. Now, despite what some people think, God is not against sex. He is not a prude. The whole thing is his idea. And, and there are books in the Bible that celebrate sex, that, 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 that celebrate the love between a man and a woman who have committed themselves together for the course of a lifetime. God is not against sex. But he just says it's, it's more than biology. There's no such thing as casual sex. It's, it's mystical and, and sacred and, and easily dangerous. And so there needs to be parameters. And cultures often start with very clear parameters around sexual expression and then move as they decline towards great openness. We're living in that culture. Sex is being exploited in every conceivable way possible. 
Thirdly, we're in a culture that is increasingly defined by economics. It is, it is market-defined. It's not even just that we're market-driven. The value out there is, is, is an economic one. This is, please, again, as I've said before, this is not a critique of capitalism per se. Capitalism that is shaped by Christian conviction and compassion is probably the best economic system we can hope for. But there's not a lot of shaping by Christian conviction and compassion today. And as opposed to people being valued as being made in the image of God, right? People are described as consumers, and everyone is trying to sell us. Everyone is trying to persuade us that we're not complete without something that we really don't need. And so we're, we're subject to just hundreds and hundreds of, of commercials, the net effect of which is it, it's corrosive to our soul. I mean, it's a, it's a weird world that we live in. If you were born 200 years ago, you would see maybe one, one ad a month. We get hundreds a day. Jesus didn't see a single ad in his life. I mean, we live in this culture that is just... It's, it's not particularly healthy. And a fourth thing that I would note is that we live in a culture that is, that is increasingly uh, emotive rather than rational, where, where people try to move us and persuade us on the basis of emotion, not on the basis of reason. The, the page has been replaced by the screen. And, and the, the biggest problem with the screen is not what's on it. And I say this, by the way, as somebody who, we have a TV, I watch TV, this isn't a never watch TV statement. That's not what I'm saying. Some things that are okay in moderation are just not okay in excess. The problem with TV is not so much what's on it, however vile that grows. And it grows more vile. When I was a kid and we watched the Dick Van Dyke show, Right? Rob and Laura Petrie were married, and they slept in separate beds. So uh, that's not the culture we live in today. But that's not the biggest problem about TV. The problem with TV is the medium. It shapes the arguments. And increasingly, every argument is being shaped by a screen as opposed to a page. And you think differently, or you actually don't think. You more feel when things are being shaped for a screen. It's not that you come to different, it's not that you come to the same conclusions in different ways. It's that you reach different conclusions. And, and that increasingly is the world in which we live. Our culture is not as healthy as it was. It's never been perfect. There's always been problems. There's some good things out there today, absolutely. But our culture is declining. And that means that, that we are impacted. That means people are damaged by the culture that we live in. And furthermore, it means we have to be more discerning in terms of what we take in. We, we, have, to, we have to edit. We have to filter. We have to block. We can't be as passive as we have been able to be in the past. We have to be more thoughtful. We can't keep drinking the cultural Kool-Aid and think that we're going to be okay. Point number five. 
When we think about thinking, it's worth noting that thinking is hard. It is a, um, it is a spiritual discipline, by which I mean two things. First of all, it, it's necessary for our growth and development. Every bit as necessary as the other as the other practices that we are called to as Christ followers. Prayer and worship and Bible study and service and giving. These are all things that we need to do in order to become more like Christ. Again, we're not talking our justification here. We're not talking about how we are adopted into the family of God. That's the work of Christ. But, but there are a number of things that we are expected to do that position us so the Spirit of God moves us to become more like Christ, our sanctification. And, and when we think about our sanctification, some of what we have to do are these habits or disciplines, and thinking is one of them. It's every bit as important that you think as it is that that you attend worship. Jesus commands us to love God with our mind. And Paul instructs us to think in a certain way. These are things we're expected to do. But the real reason that I would argue that thinking is a spiritual discipline is because it's a discipline. It's, it's not easy. It's hard work. Right? Disciplines require effort. You don't accidentally end up in good shape. You have to work at it. In the same way, we don't accidentally grow wise. It, some disciplined practices are required. And one of those that we're... We need to think. And, and by thinking in this context, I, I don't mean that we've got to think at the highest levels 24 hours a day. No, we, we can't do that. Thinking is hard. It's exhausting. But, but one or two hours a day of thinking right, can make all the difference. One or two hours a day where we're actually reflecting on our life, where we're studying God's Word, where we're applying it, where we're thinking these things out, where we're reading thoughtful works and, and wrestling with that. Right? It's, it's, in that sense, think of it like you might think about working out. You don't work out 24 hours a day, but there's time, you know, five days a week, six days a week, where you're actually working at it. I would argue that we need to be disciplined about this. Thinking is hard work. Point number six. Um, It's worth noting that we're not thinking as well as we used to. Collectively, we know more today than we have ever known. Most of the scientists who have ever been alive are alive today. They are making discoveries at an astonishing clip. We are the beneficiaries of those discoveries and of the technological applications of that knowledge and insight. And so there's great medical advances and there's access to information in ways that no one else has ever been given. So there's lots of information out there. But when it comes to wisdom... Okay, which, is, which is the right living that flows out of right thinking. And when it just comes to thinking, I would argue that we're not where we were even 50 years ago. Now, 
the, the wisdom argument I, I can make perhaps most, um, most forcefully by just pointing out that when you went to college in the past, it was understood that you were not simply going to be intellectually molded, you were also going to be morally formed. That was part of the mandate of the university. And not just of private universities or of Christian universities. And as you may know, higher education in this country was almost exclusively a Christian endeavor. So Harvard and Yale and William and Mary and Princeton and, and Rutgers and Brown and all these schools that were started were started by Christians. And their initial mission statements are remarkably like the mission statements you would find in a church today. It is to train students to love God, to follow Christ, to dedicate their life to service, and, and to, to becoming more like Jesus, the Savior of the world. These are the mission statements that Harvard and Yale, and the mission statements at Princeton and Brown and William and Mary. They were, they were decidedly Christian endeavors. It wasn't, though, just the private schools. It was the public schools. In, in, the, in the late 19th century, a student was kicked out of the University of Illinois for skipping chapel. The president of the University of Illinois, like the president of almost all the other state schools, was a minister of the gospel. And truth was understood remarkably through the eyes of people who believed this book to be true. That, that, was, that was higher education. Now, there are still colleges today who, who embrace this idea that we're not simply trying to get people to think so they can get a job. But we're molding people. Almost exclusively, those are Christian colleges today. And if you, if you, if you uh, look at what, what some of the other now not Christian, previously Christian universities like Princeton, if you look at what they say today, it's, it's completely in the other direction. So recent New York Times uh, article by David Brooks, he is uh, quoting a Princeton administrator who says, uh, quote, we've taken the position that students are adults and building their character is not our job. There is a self-conscious, there's a self-conscious attempt not to instill character. Okay? Now, part of the reason for this is because who decides what's good character today? Right? We live in a culture that's relativistic. If you have a faculty meeting and say, we want good people, not just we're training people to get a job, not just that we're trying to impart information, but we actually want to mold the soul of these students, what, what should that look like? you'd have a riot in the faculty because there's no agreement on what that should look like. So this idea of building moral character and fiber, wisdom, this is what the book of Proverbs is about, that it's not just enough to have knowledge. There needs to be wisdom. It needs to be translated into the decisions that we make. We're not doing so much of that anymore. And when it comes to thinking well, you know, I, I, I can simply point out some of the obvious. We don't read that SAT and ACT scores keep going up every year. Right? And, 
And uh, if, if I just preaching over at the Highland Park campus, that, that uh, the, the church that we merged with before it became Christ Church Highland Park, that church has been around for 150 years. I'm quite confident that if I could find a sermon from 100 years ago and I preached it here today, there'd be a lot of very frustrated people because you couldn't, couldn't keep up. Because the sermons were longer and they assumed a lot more biblical knowledge a hundred years ago than we assume today. Sermons get shorter and simpler. Newspaper and magazine articles get shorter, more pictures. Right? I mean, we've seen that in the, in the trib in the last couple of years. When I was, uh, 20 years ago, I started writing a column for a magazine, 4,000 words. After three or four years, they said, you know what, we're rethinking this 2,500-word limit. And four or five years later, they go, 1,000-word limit. And then three or four years after that, they said, 400-word limit. And I wrote for about six months, and finally I, I said, you know what, I can't say anything worth saying in 400 words. Maybe somebody else can. But I, I'm not going to write a column at 400 words. I mean, this, this is the trend line that we have. I was talking with a, with a uh, lawyer here at the church, uh, general counsel for a firm. He said, uh, we routinely don't take, court, don't take cases to trial, and we fold our hand knowing that we're right, but also knowing that we will not be able to hold the jury's attention long enough to prove our point. And we used to be able to, but not today. We're not thinking as well as we once did. Although it's not a popular statement, and most of us are chronological snobs. We think we're better and smarter than the people who came before us. And most Americans have high self-esteem, even in spite of sometimes the evidence, a recent math test of high school students globally. There's 25 countries that participate, and the United States students got, uh, I don't know, 20th or 21st. And, but they, when they were asked how well they thought they did, they thought they were the best, as opposed to uh, the South Koreans who got first but thought that they were among the worst, right? We, we, we think we're thinking. We're just not thinking. And that leads to the final point. The goal is to be people who have both big heart and a big mind. The goal is to have a big heart and a big mind. Not simply to have a big mind. But I I stress this in part because there are some people in the church who, who are actually hostile to the life of the mind. And, and if you, you can hear them occasionally saying, look, you know, we don't need this scholarship. We don't need this education. You've got to get over that. You've got to just, got to love God with your heart. Jesus chose uneducated men. He celebrated the faith of little children, right? And Paul warns us that knowledge puffs up. So we just, we just need to just have a big heart. And I, and I think that many of these people think that you can either have a big heart and a little mind or you have a little heart and a big mind. But I would say we are called to both and that our scholarship should lead to greater worship. 
yes, you know what? Just to engage this conversation, yes, Jesus chose uneducated men. But they didn't stay uneducated. Right? One of the, one of the arguments that sometimes liberals will make to, to say that the Bible wasn't what it claims to be, and that, for instance, Peter didn't write First Peter, and Second Peter, they'll say he couldn't have. He was a fisherman, and the Greek is too polished. It reflects an educated person. Okay, well, right. He wrote it towards the end of his life. He didn't stay only a fisherman. He continued to grow and learn. And yes, Jesus celebrated the faith of little children, but he told us not to be childlike in our faith. Their faith was innocent. That's what was being celebrated, not that it was uninformed. Later on, Paul will say, you should be here. You're down here. I'm, I'm giving you the milk. I can't give you the meat because you're not learning and growing. And Paul says, right, that knowledge can lead to pride and we need to be nervous about that. But he doesn't therefore tell us to be stupid. He tells us to be humble. The problem isn't the knowledge. The problem is the pride. We are called to love God with our heart and with our mind. So, how do we do that? What, is that? uh, what does that actually look like? I mean, you can't go home and say, okay, I'm going to think really profound thoughts now. <laughs> Let me suggest that um, there are a couple simple steps that you can take that will be, in fact, revolutionary in your life. Number one, memorize Scripture. In, in, the, in the battlefield of our mind, the war that's being waged for what we think, nothing is as powerful as the Word of God. And when Jesus was being tempted by the devil, every time he responded, it is written, it is written, it is written. Right? He, he had memorized God's Word and he used God's Word to bring things back to truth. So, Write out some verses on a piece of paper. You come across in, in, in your, your own devotional time. You come across in a book. You come across in a sermon. Something that, that stands out. Write it on a piece of paper. Carry it in your back pocket. Put it in your purse. Review these things on an ongoing basis, right? When you're sitting in the dentist's office and you got 10 minutes before you get called in, don't pick up an old people magazine and read about someone on their 12th marriage. Take, take this out. And put God's Word more deeply into your mind. Secondly, read more, watch less. More pages, less screens. And this isn't just a call to read Christian books, although it certainly is that. This is also a call to just read great books. We think differently when we are critically engaging things on a page than when we are passively taking them in through a screen. So, read more, watch less. Third, get into a small group. Because in small groups, you're going to discuss life, and you're going to discuss ideas, and you're going to, you're going to wrestle with these things. You're going to, we've got lots of sermon-based small groups that take the sermon to the next level, 
Again, there's always there's more notes that go online than I preach, and they go in deeper. So you take this, go deeper, think about it, take it to the next level. And then finally, point number four, uh, we have to say no more often. Um, there's great and wonderful stuff out in the culture, but there's a lot of bad stuff out in the culture as well. And in Psalm 101.3 The writer says, I will put no worthless thing before my eyes. There's a lot of worthless things that are going before our eyes. Learn to say no. Learn to walk away from conversations that are not going in ways that are going to help you. Learn to turn things off. we got to say no more often. Men and women, our mind is a sacred trust. Our heart is to be guarded. Out of it flows who we are. We can be renewed by the transforming of our mind. We have to be good stewards of our thinking. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the remarkable, fascinating, wonderful minds that you have given us. And we quickly confess that we have not used them consistently in the way that we should. I want to pray, uh, Lord God, that we would indeed be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we would learn increasingly to direct our thoughts to to move towards things that are true and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy, that we would think your thoughts after you. May we be transformed by the renewing of our mind to become more like Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.